Hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. You know, finding a service solution that keeps your customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at that networking event. And HubSpot Service Hub can help. So with the service solution part, at least it makes it easy. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform. With an AI-powered help desk and a chatbot to handle your frontline tickets so you could scale support and drive retention and revenue. Visit HubSpot.com slash service to learn more. Boom, we're here. Coronavirus and all. Yeah, the streets of San Francisco are empty. You could have walked down in the middle of the street and it uh, would have been fine. Yeah, and um, we're in this studio and Sam's just coughing up a storm, which has got me concerned. So allergies. This may be my last podcast. You don't know. Allergies. <laughs> the type of allergies that you can catch and kill you, but right. allergies. So uh, this is for all the students of Stanford, Harvard, Syracuse that have been shut down. They're at home, certainly just listening to the podcast in quarantine. This is for you. This one goes out to you. Uh, yeah, good luck. All right, what do we want to talk about? We got a bunch of words on the screen. They all look interesting. Where do you want to start? Pick one. Can we talk about... I read every review for the yeah. podcast. Um, we have 600 reviews, maybe. 794. Just checked this morning. Cool. Seven, so 800. Let's say 800. Um, I, they're all five stars, except for like five. Yeah. And that's cool. I like reading the positive reviews. We and have, those five were from early on when you weren't even on the pod. So really, no, I take those I take those L's. No, there were two <laughs> not five-star reviews. <laughs> okay. And I like listening to negative feedback. And I don't like following all of it, but some of it I right. follow. The first was that the sound for the guests were bad. Agreed. Fair. Uh, we will listen to that. Yes. And the second one, and I hate this. I don't hate it in that it bothers me, but I, I just don't. Like, I don't think it's bad feedback, which is we were called bros. Right. And I don't really care about that because I, what's that mean? How is that supposed to be? Like, people use that as an insult. I don't understand why that's an insult. Yeah, it's an insult uh, for sure, to be clear. <laughs> it used to not be an insult, but being called a bro is an insult. And um, yeah, I don't know. Is it the way we talk? Is it what we talk about? Is it are we using the wrong words? I'm not, not exactly sure. Yeah, I don't take offense to that, even though people mean it. To be offensive um so i don't care if people say that yeah i'm not a bro i'm a lover not a fighter you know i, 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 I got multiple angles i, I got gears bro. what does a bro mean <laughs> uh i don't know henry what's a bro we, we need the get get the get, say, you gotta go into the mic come on bro <laughs> yeah, come on bro um it's definitely not a good thing especially if you're like over the age of 20 Maybe we have to replace Henry with a female, and then we'll get more credit for not being just a bro down. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> no, I don't care about being called a bro. Friends, So then it's a compliment. Yeah, kind of. I don't know. Whatever. I'm not and trying to be liked. I'm just trying to be me. No. Um, well, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to be me, and I'm trying to create stuff that people want. And if yeah. it's predominantly people think it's broy, but they love it, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Like for example, I listen to the Joe Rogan podcast. Joe Rogan talks about. His carnival all car, all meat diet, you know, uh, working out, UFC fighting, cage fighting, uh, hunting. You know, these are cars. Like these are his topics because that's what he's genuinely interested in. And I he like, talks about and he talks about other things too. Everything else. Um, and I like when people. I like listening to stuff where people are interesting and they're interested in certain stuff. And so for me, the test with this podcast is: Would I want to listen to this? And so at the end of the episode, I just sort of think, 
would I be interested in listening to that podcast? And if it's appealing to me, then I'm sure it's appealing to other people. It's not going to be appealing to everybody for sure. And then the last bit of negative feedback we got, which is we focused too much on the San Francisco Silicon Valley scene. Um, and I'm from Missouri by way of Tennessee. You're from everywhere, including yeah. Colorado. I, I love San Francisco and I hate it at the same time. I'll be the first to make fun of it. But also, I love all types of cool shit going on throughout the country. So yeah, I'm, that's probably fair. If criticism. it's interesting, let's talk about it. In fact, I actually think personally, I think we skew a little too far in the kind of like low tech ideas. And I think there's a lot of interesting high tech ideas that don't require a high tech entrepreneur. For example, I don't know how to code, but I've started tech startups in Silicon Valley, taken venture capital money and worked with an engineering team where I'm the only guy in the room who doesn't know anything about engineering. You can do that. So I actually think that there's plenty of cool stuff that we're not talking about that I'm going to be bringing more of. So if you don't like the Silicon Valley stuff, I'm sorry. I'm going to try to bring more uh, interesting technology uh, to the table because there's a lot of it out there. And I feel like we haven't been talking about it as much. The way that I describe San Francisco and Silicon Valley is to me, it's kind of like Hollywood, but it's only only if you're trying to make like a like a big blockbuster hit. Right. Um, I believe that you can make those anywhere. Mm -hmm. It might be a little bit more helpful if you are physically in Hollywood because you'll not because the chances are necessarily higher, but because you'll be around other people who have similar wants and dreams and your baseline becomes a certain yeah, thing for sure. But you can certainly make it from anywhere. Absolutely. It's been proven. Um, okay. Let's talk about some of these things. Um, let's start with, let's start with the Sequoia memo. Okay. Did you read this? No, I avoided it on purpose. <laughs> nice. Denial. Uh, the best, the best approach. Yeah. I, uh, we haven't raised venture capital, so it's a little bit different. It's not but, as applicable. But okay, why so, don't you explain so let's to me explain what it, what it is. So Sequoia is one of the biggest venture capital firms here in Silicon Valley. They are famous for back in 2008, I want to say. They released this presentation called RIP Good Times. And they basically they called an emergency meeting of all their portfolio companies. They invited them to this dinner, locked them in a room, put this presentation up on the screen that was basically like, hey, the good times we've all been experiencing – are about to end. Here's why. Most of you entrepreneurs, you have not been a part of these cycles. We've been investors through the dot-com boom and the bust and then this new boom. And this was right before the sort of financial crisis of 2008. And they told them, look, money is about to become hard to come by. Um, we are going to have um, a giant financial crisis. It will have ripple down effects to you guys, to your customers, to your clients, to your investors. And so you need to start tightening up. Anything you're wasting money on, you need to stop wasting it. Anything, uh, if you haven't raised money, if you don't have 12 months in the bank, you need to go raise money right now to sort of uh, be able to endure a downturn. And they just released another one, which is the new Sequoia memo. So that was 2008. Now they released a new one. And they basically were like, look, this coronavirus stuff is a, this is a once in a hundred year virus. And there's this, it's, it happened in China, which is like, when you shock China, you shock the global supply chain. And also, now that travel is going to stop, a whole bunch of business is going to come to a halt. The stock market's going to go into a panic because we've been in a 10-year bull run, and that's about to sort of end anyways. So they, they told them the same thing. Change your spending habits. You need to tighten up. Uh, raise money. If you, ha if you have an offer out there, take it. Uh, don't worry about valuation. Just take it and get the money in the bank. And, um, and you know, you need to go into sort of survival mode. You need to change gears. And that's what just came out, which I think is very interesting. Have you made any adjustments to your business? Not yet, but I live like this anyway. I'm kind of a cockroach in the first place. And yeah. and I actually think that me living this way has kind of been a, a 
consequence. It, it has been is hurt me more than it's helped me actually. Mm. I think it, it it made it so I wouldn't spend enough money. Which, if you have a machine that turns a dollar into more than one dollar, dump the dump the truck your money truck like on, what ad spend or what do you mean yeah i mean look if you have a, a funnel where you or a product where if you just spend more on marketing or spend more on engineers or spend more on content creators and it turns that new customer into more than what you acquired them for right then if anyone had a, a little machine that turned one dollar into one dollar and one penny the name of the game is throw as much money on into that machine as you possibly can as fast as you can and yeah. i've had those machines and i didn't capitalize on it and so I've lived this way all the time, and I think it's right. actually hurt me a lot. But in times like these, bring it on. Yeah, I mean, you don't need to adjust. We haven't changed how we've done things just because we're always tight. Yeah, and your company's in a good position. Like just now before this, we were looking at a company's um, P&L, and it was like cash in the bank, 220 grand or something like that. It's like, dude, you're a couple months away from insolvency, you know, if that right. was the case. Um, whereas you guys are in a much better position. Yes. Um, I do. I am. I do have a little fear. I don't know how I feel about this Corona thing when it means what it means for business. I do think that I am on the side of um, I think it's bad, but I don't think it will be as bad as I think or as I originally thought. Right. I, I guess I just have faith. I have a lot of uh, blind faith that it will work out. Which, so I've been on the other side of the, so, so when we were doing our idea lab, uh, I worked with this guy, Michael Birch, Michael Birch was, is known as if you just Google, he's like one of the top growth guys in the world. He sort of was doing an invented viral marketing before viral marketing was a word. Uh, he did it because he didn't have money back in the day. So he built one of the first address book importers where, uh, for this company called birthday alarm, he had. He was like, and I think he did it before that at um, Rick Marini's company. I forget what that was called. Birthday was before that. So, oh. so Birthday was the first one where he was like, "Hey, I want people to send this to their friends. What if I just imported all the addresses from their Hotmail, and then I made it easy? Push this button to send it." And he's like, he he literally told me at his house. He was like, "I thought that ten days later, like I thought there's no way they let this go for more than ten days." And he's like, it's now been 15 years and this thing still works. And he's like, um, so he was working on viral marketing because he just didn't have a budget. So he's like, I got to use my customers to get me more customers. And to explain that, you didn't explain it totally clear, but someone signs up for your thing and says, do you want to invite your friends? Here's your Gmail contacts. Click select all and send an email to all of them. And so in this case for birthday alarm, it was, I make a calendar where I'm, and I'll invite you. I'll say, hey, Sam, can you add your birthday to my calendar? I, I don't want to forget your birthday. This is before Facebook existed, by the way. And so you would add your birthday to my calendar. And then it would, hey, it would say, hey, Sam, don't you want to remember Sean's birthday? That'd be nice, like reciprocate. And you'd be like, yeah, sure. And then it would say, hey, Sam, you got one birthday on the calendar, but you surely got more friends than one. So why don't you invite some other friends? Here, let me make it easy for you. Would you like to import all your friends from Hotmail? And you're like, yes. And then and he added one thing at a time to make it more viral. So he, he would add... Um, a pre-filled message because he's like, oh, there people are stopping because they can't think of what to say. Right. So here's a pre-filled message that I know works, and then I just say send. And so then uh, he got this thing super viral. So you know, birthday alarm grew to 50 million members with zero paid marketing. 50 million, and um, and then he's done this again and again since then with his social network, Bebo, and others. So when I worked with them, the name of the game was viral growth. And so we did a charity campaign. They're trying to raise money for charity water. Well, we made a story, a website that was just telling a story of this boy, Jean Bosco, with no water. And then we said, can we get this to go viral? And so we did the same thing, import, import emails, get people to send the story to their friends and raise money for the cause. And we got it to go viral. So I've literally been, been it where like nothing, nothing, nothing. You'd come into work, nothing, no growth, no growth, no growth. 
and you would just tweak the right thing. And then all of a sudden, the, you know, between overnight, something would have doubled. And the next morning, it doubled again. Next morning, doubled again. And I remember it just going from zero to five million people uh, signing up for this charity thing within like, you know, two weeks. It was insane. And so I've seen viral growth and how counterintuitive it is. Like you don't think, you know, well, yesterday we had 4,000 people. So today we're going to have, I don't know, 5,000, 6,000. It's like, no, you're going to have 16,000. Then you have 32,000. And it's going to, you know, it's going to go up to the millions within a few days. And so I've seen viral growth when you're talking about it in the good sense from a product perspective. Now it's viral growth of an actual fucking virus. And so, uh, and you can see actually in the US, somebody did a great graph where they mapped Italy where everything's on lockdown because Italy has started spreading like crazy. And they showed Italy day one, US day one. Italy day two, US day two, number of cases. And the bar graphs are like identical. And the thing is, we're just in like whatever, day six. And uh, you can see by day 21 where this thing gets to if you don't like lock everything down right away. So I am very fearful because I've seen viral growth. I've seen viral spread. And I know that it doesn't work the way it breaks our brains. Our brains think things go linearly, but this goes exponentially. And it's really hard to just comprehend an exponential spread. And to take the story a different way than coronavirus, which is that stuff that you're describing, that Michael Birch thing, you can actually still get all these cool plugins that auto uh, automatically like allow people to share a pre-populated message to all their Gmail contacts. We used yeah. it, and people still share. Yeah, and the the, the math works out where you know because um, you would think I would never do that. I wouldn't email all my contacts. No, we had a lot of people doing it, but people do it, and what happens is you know one percent or less will do it. But you look at the math. 1% of people do it. On an average, they have 326 contacts. So for every 100 people that come in, you get 326 people blasted out. It doesn't work as good as that time because the email open rates are much higher then. Yeah. But now can... people are like, oh, I don't know. I never talked to Sam. So if he's sending me this, this is junk. This is spam. Uh, now people filter it. But in certain countries, it works. Like we were growing like we could do this like clockwork in India. In India, people still open it like they did in the U.S. 10 years ago, and they forward even, even higher rates. They don't care. They'll forward everything to everybody. And so India, Turkey, all these little countries where we would see this crazy growth that you couldn't get in the U.S. And, or U.K. anymore. They kind of suck because the monetary value ends up, you know, the value per user is lower there, but it does still feel good to get like crazy And it definitely works, and people are shocked by that. Yeah, we did one through SMS, I remember, and over the weekend it went viral. And like, you know, during the week, Monday through Friday, everything looked fine, is growing, but like not at a crazy pace. We didn't realize the viral coefficient was two. And so over the weekend, it took off um, and started compounding on a big number. And we racked up 120000 in SMS, $120,000 bill in SMSs Holy crap. going through um, uh, Kazakhstan. It's like we didn't even know we we're growing. We we're going to grow in Kazakhstan, and it went crazy. And turns out, texting in Kazakhstan is super expensive. And so, one hundred twenty thousand dollars in two days, we had to pay off. That's just, crazy. It sucked. Well, <laughs> I need. We need to do the texting stuff, um, which we haven't. Uh, you want to talk about Zumper? Mm-hmm. They just raised. Uh, was it forty million dollars today at a four hundred million dollar valuation total? They've raised one hundred fifty million dollars in valuation. Uh, it's a cool. It's a cool service. Um, if you're a consumer, how does it work? You yeah. Just so, go have, on have you ever t- used Zumper? If you're trying to find an apartment, you'll probably run into Zumper because you're like, it's a search engine to find apartments to rent. Yeah. And typically for these new guys, San Francisco isn't the major market. It's typically uh, more middle of America, more places where they have high rise buildings, which we don't have a lot here. But basically, if you Google Chicago apartments, 
or moving to Chicago or something like that. Zumper or apartmentless mile, the place where I used to work or a bunch of other things like that will come up and it'll be like, here's 843 apartments available in Chicago. Click here to get information and submit your information. Okay, great. Here's how they work, which a lot of people have no idea how they work. Henry, I'm going to explain to you how they work and you tell me if you've ever heard this. Okay, so they're lead gen companies. Do you know what a lead gen company is? Okay, the way it works is... Uh, and a lot of people are shocked by this and it's actually way easier to start than most people would realize. So the way it works is there's, I don't know how many there are who do this, but I know that there are for sure four or five that do this that are big names. And so just in the apartment space, just in the apartment space. So there's apartments.com. I believe there's rent.com and there's maybe two others that are quite large. And then there's dozens that you don't even realize exist. You'd have to Google them and find them. But what they do is they work with all the big apartment buildings. So uh, there's Graystar, which has probably millions of apartments. Then there's um, CoStar, which has a bunch. And then there's um, every apartment building that you have. WorldStar. World... <laughs> <laughs> what, what are the other ones? Graystar. And then there's um, Avalon. Avalon Bay, yep. I think they're called. There's a bunch of them. And they have millions of units. And what they do is they go to Red.com and they go... Uh, or apartments.com and they go for every person who signs a lease with us or who calls our our phone we're going to give you a hundred bucks and so what zumper can do or probably how they started out or what anyone can do is they go hey apartments.com you guys are getting a hundred dollars per call will you give us ten dollars per email we give you of people who are qualified leads so what zumper uh did i imagine they did this when they launched and i'll explain why i say when they launched is what they did was they go to these places and they go all right give us a cut of the revenue per email and so the math works out that if we send you five emails Basically, people who said, here's my email address, here's my phone number, I'm interested in a two-bedroom at this particular building, uh, apartments will will be like, all right, we'll give you $10 for that because we're pretty confident that for every five of these we collect, one of them will become a lead. And so now we make 50 bucks in profit. Mm -hmm. And so what Zumper does is they create a different funnel where... Uh, They learn how to rank really high on moving to Chicago, find an apartment, or they are able to have really good Facebook ads and they get all these leads and that's what their margin is. And so the margins for these businesses, I know this firsthand, could be 60 to 70% gross margin, which means, um, let's see, what's the math behind that? Million bucks comes through the door. You paid, you know, 250K on search engine marketing, yeah. but you know the rest is because there's no cogs, there's no there's no physical product you're selling, so you have a, a very high margin product, sixty seven percent margin plus whatever content staff you have internally. That's your other cost. So it's just a lead gen company. Yeah. And the interesting thing, I've known a lot of people who have these lead, lead gen companies. I knew a guy who had a lead gen company for swimming pools. So if you wanted to buy a swimming swimming pool, you'd Google buy, um, swimming pool repairman or uh, indoor ground pool indoor. Uh, in-ground pool set up California <laughs> right. or something like that. He's and he, number one. And he would, he would be number one. You submit your information and he would sell it to these people who go and service Who that, actually do the thing. Who actually <laughs> do the work. You're a middleman when you're a lead. Now, there's pros and cons to this business. The first pro is you could set these up really cheaply and you could start making cash flow very quick. Like if you were able to spend one month just building the site and creating the relationship with this person, you could next day go right. out and start making cash so long as you were profitably acquire a customer. Right. So that's great. The second great thing is you could do this for most anything. The best way I think to figure out how to do this is you figure out what has the largest total market size with also the largest possible cost per lead um, with also the least amount of competition. And you do like a... A, a grid. Yeah, yeah, like a grid. And so for example, 
I've been bullish on truck drivers. Um, the reason why is I think that there's a whole lot of truck drivers in America. The average truck driver makes a, a good salary, fit, let's say $50,000 a year. Therefore, recruiters would be willing to pay like 100 bucks per lead. So I was like, right. can I send leads there? Or you could do it for uh, local services. So I need a uh, landscaper or I need, need irrigation work done at my, ho- right. my home. And someone will buy those leads for, I don't know, 50 bucks. So you can do this for anything. Right. You just have to optimize for what... So my father-in-law is in the senior living business. He owns a couple of facilities. And the biggest thing for them, like his business looks great when he has high occupancy rates. And it looks terrible if he gets high vacancy, so low occupancy. And um, so there's companies out there that do this for seniors. If you start Googling, like, you know, you know um, memory care in Alameda, California, there's a company that will pop up right in the top of search and say, hey, we've reviewed the top 15 um, you know, facilities here and come read about them. Or, hey, are you looking for this? Talk to our consultant. Just put in your email address here and we'll, we'll help you get land in a spot. And so then they'll pay these lead gen services a high amount because, you know, somebody who goes into a senior, senior facility, they're paying $8,000 per month and they're usually there till end of life. And so you get, you know, the very high lifetime value of that customer. So you're willing to pay $1,000 per qualified lead who's looking in your area. Yeah, I don't, so I don't know do if it's it that exact like number, that. but high, high price. And I have firsthand knowledge. I know someone personally, and I know the financials of a senior home living or senior living lead gen business. It mm-hmm. made hundreds of thousands of dollars a month in revenue and a very good profit. I know someone who did it for rent to own properties. I know people who have done it for, like I said, swimming pools. I know people who have done it for apartments. I know a guy who did it for local home services and did about 60 to $70 million a year in sales. Right. And so that's the name of the game. I also know people who have done it for jobs. Jobs is another good one. Now, like Rig Up has done this. They've raised money at a 2 or $3 billion valuation, and they've done it for oil workers. And the way the math works is there's actually way more oil workers in America than you think, hundreds right. of thousands, or can be hundreds of thousands. Um, and those oil workers, uh, the barrier to entry is relatively low. You don't have to have uh, like a master's degree in something, so anyone can do it, or a lot of people can do it. And the salary is quite high, hundred grand a year in some cases. So right. they're willing to spend a lot of money. And so it's a really interesting company or a business rather. And a lot of people don't know that's how it works. Now, here's the downside. The downside is lead gen companies can be very transactional, which means as a business, you only capture value and make money the more leads you're coming in through there. And often that means you only make money when you're spending money. Mm-hmm. A lot of times you uh, they suck at building brands. So like I said, you could spend something up really fast. That means it can likely go away just as fast. Because let's say that um, like if you create a URL that's like, home uh senior home living california.com that is not like maybe maybe someone is just going to google that and they're going to see it one time right. they don't think of you yeah and then they're going to get there and they're done they're never going to think about you ever again and you so, have to pay for them again <laughs> and so if you want more customers you got to pay again right and so that's quite hard so if you can build a brand around it then that's where it's really interesting and the second thing is that you are dependent on the person buying the lead so in my case i worked for uh, a person who was doing lead gen and they go all right there's a cap on this. Like we can only make a certain amount of money giving leads. The way that we become a huge business is we get we make a relationship directly with the apartment buildings and um, go straight there, go straight to them. Now the reason why that sucked is because the person buying the leads was like, "Oh, you're our competition now." Right. 
you're out, and they cut it off, and their revenue goes away immediately. Right. And so what Thumbtack did, I like Thumbtack. What they've done is they've built a direct relationship with the people. So if you Google San Francisco wedding photographer and you see a wedding um, photographer on Thumbtack, they've built that relationship with them, and, thumb, and that wedding photographer will pay Thumbtack directly for a lead. That's great because there's no middleman to cut out. Now, the downside with that is it costs a ton of money to do. This is like a really big problem. To build a marketplace. Um, and so you likely have to raise money or figure out some scrappy way to get it done right but uh that's my rant on zumper yeah and the the big version of these if you take it to its absolute max is like expedia or booking.com yeah right so what they're doing is they're saying okay cool you want to book a flight i will become the best at ranking for how to search for flights find a good flight here's some recommended trips and then we just the airlines pay us uh, a commission an affiliate fee for every lead we're we're sending them and that is a notoriously difficult niche yeah, they, they've done well, but they're hyper competitive, and yeah. they're you know, um, it's always contentious. Um, and then uh, hotels is another one that's quite challenging. If I wanted to make money really fast, I would find a relatively boring one like trucking jobs, yeah. which I find interesting, but most people do not, so they will not enter that. But flights and travel is a lot sexier, and so it can be I'll, a lot harder. I'll give you another niche one. Um, I have a friend who created this business called Apply Board, and what he was doing was uh, international students. People, you know, I went to high school in China, and when I when I was graduating in China, everybody wanted to come to the U.S. to study. Everyone wants to come to U.S. colleges. So internationally, India, China, Indonesia, Malaysia, the best students all want to come to the U.S. if they can. So they want to come to the U.S., but they don't know where the hell to start. They don't know what the schools are. They don't know how to apply. They don't know how to translate their their scoring on all these like you know aptitude tests in Malaysia to like what the U.S. schools want, et cetera. So there's a, there's a barrier there. And the U.S. schools love foreign students because they pay more. Like I think a, a foreign student, who international student who's going to school at Berkeley will pay double the tuition as a local student. Not just an in-state student. Like a U.S. out-of-state student versus international, the international student pays double. And uh, Alan, that's you. Uh, you pay double? So I paid more than double. So I went to school in Australia. I think the average uh, per semester is like five to 6000 for like a local student. I paid... Like 45 a semester. Okay, so you, all right, great. So so you paid like nine times as much um, going, going to school. That's insane. So basically what he was doing, so he went to colleges and, and you have all these small colleges that just need applicants because they don't have a brand name. So yeah, a lot of Stanford and Harvard, they don't really care because they're getting so many applicants anyways, it doesn't matter. But like San Jose State, you know, they were like, hey, we will pay you $1,000 per admitted student, $3,000 per admitted student. So he was getting three grand per admission uh, in contract with all these different schools. And then he just had to do lead gen on the other side for students who want to go to school in America, which was actually a big market of people who were searching for it. And that. what happened to it? Uh, he's still going. I don't know. I haven't checked in with him lately, but hope you're yeah. doing good. Martin, I hope you're doing all right. <laughs> I used to work at the University of Sydney as a part-time job. And I remember getting an email one time where they were describing the strategy for the year and how they're trying to pivot away from attracting so many international students. But that was they couldn't do it because that was their main source of revenue. Like they were making so much money for international students, they couldn't stay afloat if they didn't target. Yep. That. So if you go to campus right now, it's literally just like international students yeah. everywhere. Yeah, I went to University of Sydney as well for a little while. Yeah. It was it was crazy. We should so actually, did I. We should, <laughs> we should actually talk about that uh, on another time because that's an there's an interesting thing there. But 
to uh, get back to this lead thing, to wrap this up, there's actually a lot, of, and this is way bigger than people think. And one of the biggest ones is credit cards, credit karma. I don't know what they do in revenue, but they just sold for $8 billion. I bet they did one, or, I bet they did a billion in sales. And what their hook was, we're going to get you to sign up for a report, a free credit, credit a free credit report, and we're going to recommend credit cards for you to use. And they'll make $100 per credit card affiliate. We get, you. they get. Now think about credit cards, huge market, huge referral fees, very competitive. NerdWallet does the same thing. Uh, they're, they bootstrapped. I think, I don't know. If, uh, Multi-hundred million. In yeah, I mean, but I think they bootstrapped to like 50 or 60 million in sales, then raised money. So it's quite good. Now, here's another company, and here's one more interesting thing. You know the Penny Hoarder? Mm-hmm. No, the, I don't actually. I don't know why I said Have you guys heard of the mm-hmm. Penny Hoarder? Thepennyhoarder.com. Kyle spoke at HustleCon. He's a cool guy. He he's, was a great success story. Still is. But he uh, started the Penny Hoarder, and what it did was he would write about when he was poor, he didn't have any money, he would say, I didn't have any money. I was, I was trying to pay my bills. And so I would do things like drive Uber or I would um, do coupon clipping. And he would blog about it. And when, anytime someone saw an article that he wrote about driving for Uber, he would make two grand per Uber driver. And so he was like, oh, this is cool. I should, I'm going to blog about all the ways in which I can save money or make extra money. And so he did that like through uh, like there's websites where you can fill out surveys and make dollars and make a few bucks. And he would blog about it. And mostly middle America moms would see it and be like, that's great. I'll make money on the side right. and I'll sign up. And he would get an affiliate fee. And he scaled this thing from zero to 60 million in sales, completely bootstrapped in like six years. I love this. That's and, great. But here's the problem. There's this other company called Fluent Media. Fluent, I think it's called Fluent. Fluent is a publicly traded company and they are performance marketers, which means they do what I'm describing, but across tons of niches. So someone will say like direct TV will come to them and be like, Hey, uh, we'll give you $80 for every customer you send us. And they go great. And they spin up these landing pages and Fluent Media does this with trucking as well. They do a bunch of stuff. It's a big business, publicly traded. They saw Kyle's website and how much he was killing it because he talked about it a lot for PR, which (laughs) I mean, it's good and bad, good and bad. And they just and and they they ripped them off completely. They created like the dollar saver or like something like very right. similar to like the penny hoarder. They just <laughs> copied the website, copied the articles, and then they threw it on Facebook and they drove traffic, traffic. to an article that said, "Here are the hundred best ways to save money." And they did the math so they could get a click for a penny or they could get a click for a dime. And each person who came, they would make twenty cents because that's the conversion rate of which people right. would sign up. <laughs> and so Kyle at Penny Hoarder, this is all public. You can Google it. Sued them. And what they found out was Fluent Media, according to the lawsuit, hired one of the Penny Hoarder's employees and they said, yeah, here's how we did it. And so they just spun this up and it made a ton of money right off the bat. Yeah. And so these are the pros and cons. Did he win the suit? Uh, I think it's ongoing. It's ongoing. But uh, For Kyle. But this is why (laughs) this is interesting. Um, because I and, and the penny holder amongst its crew, amongst its audience, I think has a great brand. And um, yeah, and, and Nerdwall actually at this point has a great brand. At first, Nerdwall was a, simply a you're just going to Google our through. You're yeah. just going to Google best credit card, and we're going to show up one, and you're not never going to remember us. But at this point, they're doing all this advertising and commercials, and people like turn to the nerds, like it's working. That's right. their commercial. <laughs> so really interesting business model. I I like lead gen, um, but a lot of people didn't realize how that worked. Henry, was that interesting? Did you learn how it worked? That was great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. I got another one for you. Um, Manzil. So this is cool. This is one of my favorite reasons to do the podcast is that interesting people just reach out and tell me about their business. So um, Manzil is uh, this. So this guy, Sam, reached out. He listens to the podcast. What's his last name? Sam Malaco, Halako, yeah, something him. like he that. He tweeting at me too. And um, 
so he was like, Hey, I got this business, you know, would love some help with it. Um, or just would love to chat. And so I said, okay, let's, let's chat. So I get on the phone and I end up blown away by what these guys are doing. So they teach me about something I've never heard of and is now very finance, very, very, uh, uh, fascinating to me. So what they do is Manzel does Islamic financing. So like, oh, we talked about this. What's that mean? Yeah, we talked about it not on the podcast, but we talked about it offline because I was pretty interested in it. So, um, Henry, do you know what Islamic financing is? <laughs> if no. you didn't know Legion, I don't think you'll know this one. Definitely not. <laughs> so, are you are you Muslim? I'm Hindu? not. I'm Hindu. Well, I'm not, I'm neither, but like my uh, my family is Hindu. Um, so I didn't know about this, but basically, in the Muslim faith. There's um, actually uh, sort of uh, the advice is against um, traditional loans. So uh, interest, which is known as like riba, I think, in, the, in, in their faith, is uh, frowned upon in these. Uh, so a traditional mortgage where you go to the bank, you have your down payment, you take out a loan and you're paying interest is actually not compliant with, um, with, their, with their faith and their law. And which is co- actually common in a lot of other different religions is that true uh, yeah so I'm, I'm catholic christian and uh I was raised that way and there's definitely rules regarding handling money and interest and things like that yeah and i think the the fundamental basis and i'm going to kind of butcher this so i apologize but I'll, I'll i'm just trying to explain as best as i understand it uh so so apparently uh you know money uh you know, sort of fiat currency which is just not uh pegged in anything it's just a made-up concept uh the the belief system is that money has no value inherent value in itself and so you should not be charged interest for borrowing money, which is this sort of abstract concept. So they have loans or they have uh, sort of um, agreements which can work as long as both sides are taking shared risk and um, getting sort of shared shared upside, shared return in some way. Um, so there's there, is Sam Islamic, I believe so, yeah, and his his partner Muhammad is also. And so they were explaining to me that hey, there's this big thing called Islamic financing, and there's these Islam, uh, Islamic challenger banks. And so if you ever heard the word challenger bank, uh, check this out; it's pretty pretty cool. We know that banking's been around forever. There's these big bank brands that are you know in every country there's there's big banks that are worth billions of dollars. And recently, over the last let's say five to seven years, there's these things called challenger banks or neo banks. They're called. And so in Brazil, there's a bank called New Bank and New Bank. And, and New Bank is worth $10 billion. It's one of the most valuable startups in Brazil. In uh, the UK, there's Challenger Banks. Oh, my God. I'm going to forget the but name. But cha- Challenger just means a new one? It's a startup bank. Yeah. And they're, they offer different things. So what, what these guys did was better digital access. So mobile apps, uh, quicker ability to get sort of credit cards and, and debit cards spun up. Um, and so there's, you know, there's a couple of them that are huge now, um, few different multi-billion dollar startups done this. What these guys have done is, uh, they've done this for a faith-based, uh, bank, which is basically saying there's a set of customers out there, in this case, Muslims who are not being served well by the generic banks and we can make a bank that serves them better. And the way we're going to do it is you want to take a mortgage out. You can either take a sort of a mortgage out, a traditional mortgage, which is not compliant, or you can take one out that's compliant with your faith. We've come up with a mechanism that is blessed by sort of the, the village elders, you know, the, the sort of leaders in the, in the community uh, that says, yes, this is, you know, I think Sharnia law is what it's called. It's, you know, it's compliant with Sharnia law. And then on the other side, this is um, this will this works as a mortgage. You can actually buy your home. And so these guys have this have this concept, and in other countries, this is apparently really big. So in Africa, Indonesia, places where the Muslim population is the dominant population, they've already solved this problem. But in places like U.S., Canada, where it's just a minority of the population is is Muslim, 
They don't have these banks yet. So I love this startup idea because- How are they doing? So how they're doing. So they're, they've, uh, they've spent a lot of time making sure that they can actually get it to be compliant and actually get the financial mechanism to work. That took them a, a while, over a year, maybe two years. Now they've gotten that to work and they have uh, basically, they have two sides of a marketplace. On one side, they have people who are investors because you know if you're going to issue mortgages, their average mortgage is like $500,000. So it takes a lot of capital to start this business. They don't want to be the one they don't want to go raise a billion dollars and then start issuing these loans. They want on one side to have investors who uh, will put in the capital to fund these loans. And on the other side, they want to have the borrowees who are trying to buy a home who can pull from this pool of, you know, sort of halal financing, you know, this, uh, bl- this financing that's compliant. And so they have $10 million committed on the, on the investor side, 1.2 million in their bank, 10 million total. And then, um, and they're just cl- every week they're trying to close more Which of those nothing, checks. I think. Which is a small amount, but this, this is like just inbound interest. This is not like they haven't really done anything yet. But ten million will let you let you do if you just do half a million dollar loans. That means they can do whatever twenty mortgages um, uh, right now, and every mortgage has a certain value. So it's about worth about I don't know twenty k a year to them is that mortgage just in their fee that they get on top of it. Um, and so, and on the other side, they have all these applicants, I think, you know, about a thousand applicants. And these are what they call super prime applicants, because these are people who are doctors, lawyers, they have good jobs. They, they have the money, they have the means to, to, to afford their homes. They're just looking for a solution that doesn't force them to compromise their faith. So I really like this business. Cool. There's a working model in the UK. There's a working model in, um, in Africa. There's a working model in Indonesia. There's nothing in Canada where these guys are. And there's nothing really in the US uh, where, where How many Muslims is. do you think there are in America? I think there's look this up i think there's like a couple million only two two million i want to say roughly um that's pretty interesting i like that i think that there's a bunch of weird rules around banking i mean they're not weird they should be there but um and so starting a, a starting a bank i think is it's almost so like nearly impossible it's very point. difficult so what all the neobanks do all the charter banks do they're not is, real banks they're not real banks they sit on top of bbva or they sit on top of these other banks and they're just the they're the consumer facing layer but the banking happens with their underlying partner and it's sort of like the lead gen model that you're talking about they go to these banks and say hey i can get you a whole bunch more customers i'm going to spend all the money doing the marketing they'll be banking with you but we own this sort of relationship yeah and that's actually pretty common i use this thing my debit card is simple Right. I've heard of it. Yeah. Um, this is my debit card. It's pretty cool. I like it because the customer service, I can just text and they're like easy. These like young guys in Portland and they, uh, they're easy to chat with and they answer 24 hours a day. They were acquired for a hundred million dollars. And I was like, this is like a freaking bank. That's it. Yeah. And I did it's research, not a bank. Yeah. And it was, what's it called? BBVA. Yeah. That's who they use. BBVA compass. I think it's B- exactly. They're under, they're under, there's a few that are underneath all these. Now, the very first there's a now one of the challenger banks got their very first banking charter banking license Who? which is very rare i forget their name but they just announced a couple of weeks ago last two weeks that so the so now it's very interesting now once that seal broke because it was so hard to apply for this yeah i think what and you, you they need- all want it robin hood wants their license brex wants their license it's just very hard for them to get this. i think you need five percent or what's the number i think you need ten percent in reserve. Yeah, you need a certain amount of reserve. But that's which not is even the problem. Amount. It's just that there's no incentive for the government to give these out. They're like, ah, you you kind of highfalutin, you know, tech startups. Yeah. Do I really want to give this to you? You've only been around for so long. I don't know if I have the trust in you. So now the seal's broken. The first one got it. We'll see what what that means. Um, but what I like about these guys is they're not a bank. They're not taking your deposits. They're just doing loan issuance. So on one side they have the reserve cap, the the investment fund. But they're using other people's money. 
OPM on one side, yeah, other people's money to make the, the loans, and they're the broker, and they take 1% to 2% of the transaction fee. Uh, and people are willing to pay a premium to have halal financing, just like people are willing to pay a premium for halal meat or for vegan or kosher meat, you know, whatever. Like right. People are willing to pay a premium for things that are compliant with their faith. So I think, I think this could be big. And you know what's interesting? I think that they've had a hard time raising money from traditional VCs because this is they didn't understand hard it. to understand. Yeah, you have to like – you know, most VCs are old white guys and, you know, it's uh, the sort of cliche and, you know, I know they do look into it, but I think that there's na- there's the natural challenges of any high aspiration startup. They have those. They have the problems that any any startup that's really ambitious. But then they also have the problem of like, first, they need to educate you about this problem. Like you saw how I stumbled through this explanation and I talked to these guys for an hour, you know, and that's where I am after an hour of really trying to understand it. But you and you ran this by Furcon, your, your best. Your so partner, I ran. Yeah, I ran it by Muslim. him. I introduced them yesterday. I said, hey, Furcon understands this. He's Muslim. He's an investor. He's a technologist and he's an entrepreneur. If he doesn't like this, I don't like this. He, and but, what did he say? And so he. So he, he's like, I've looked into this. He's like, a lot of my friends really wanted this. I tried to look at what options are available in the U.S. They suck. They're really super high premiums. Is he practicing? Um, yeah, like, you know, to an, to an extent. Yeah. Like, what I want to know is do really like... Like, he cult- doesn't cultural- pray five times a day, but he doesn't eat pork. Right. And so he's like culturally... He, he drinks, but like his dad runs the mosque in San Jose. And, you know, like, it's... it's so even people you know, who are like culture, who aren't incredibly devout are into this. If he had the option, he would prefer halal financing over not. If it was convenient. And he's like, the problem with all the existing options, they're not convenient, they're not easy to use, and they're very high premiums. He's like, if these guys did it conveniently, I think this could be big. So he's going to talk to him. We'll see. Like, I'm, I'm not a practicing Stay Catholic tuned. anymore. Are you are any, you guys Catholic? You're Catholic yeah. for sure, right? I am. Do you yeah. eat meat on Friday? Online? Yeah, I've been bad about it, honestly. I went to, like, all boys Catholic high school, so. Me too. Uh, I went to an all boys yeah. Catholic high school. I don't practice anymore. But that's another thing. I don't eat meat during Lent on Fridays, so or I try not to. So it's kind of, it sounds like that's what it, it's kind of like where it's yeah, like, people, it's a it, spectrum. It's a, it's a, you prefer it, but not, yeah, you prefer it, especially if it's convenient for you. You, you, you know, the way Henry just said that a lot of guilt there of like, yeah, I should, but I don't. So there's, you know, if you can make it where people do what they want to do without lifting a finger, then they'll do it. You know, it's great. That's, that's pretty cool. Business I, opportunity. I like that. I like that thing, or I like that angle of finding, because I don't know anything about Muslim culture. Right. I don't know anything about Hindu culture, which is you, wh- where you're from. You. I don't know. You probably don't know too much about Catholic. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting way to like look at how other religions do things. Um, right. Another thing that we should talk about, not today, because I don't think we know what we're talking about. We definitely don't yet. Is building things on top of banks. I think that's super interesting. What do you mean by that? So, like what Simple did, and like what the what, what's the name of this company? Manzil. Man, spell it. M A N Z I L. Manzil. Okay, kind of like what Manzil did. A building. A building a front end on top of someone else's back end, right? Which is the bank. Um, I think that that's really interesting. Simple.com is my uh, card. I didn't know they did this at first. This is kind of what drop shipping is. So where you build the layer that says I'm going to get the customer to a landing page and they buy. Yep. But it's just going to place an order with this other <laughs> manufacturer and they'll ship it directly but to it's them. Super effective. I like that with banks because, um, like, simple. They did this. It's all I mean, it's it's a little different. The card is all white and it's, it's a slick looking. Yeah, um, and their app is really good, and so it's kind of interesting. I, I think this is kind of what Brex is doing. It's right, a corporate totally what credit Brex card. Is yeah. they're layered on top of Mastercard. Um, I I love these things. I, I really like that. Um, let's talk about uh, how how many minutes are we in? Uh, we're we're about an hour in. Okay, you want to? 
we can um, answer some questions, or what do you want to do? Uh, let's do one of these fun ones. So let's do the rebranding words. So this was in the Hustle group, Hustle Trends, the Trends Hustle Facebook group, which is like a source for, for entertainment and gold. Which, go to trends.co and sign up. And if you use the phrase million? Million. You'll get 50% Trends.co slash million. That's my plug. I, I believe that's it. Is it, is it slash million or is it a promo code? Both. Both will work. Okay. Trends.co slash million or trends.co. And you guys have this thing where you can sign up for a dollar, which is pretty dope. Yeah, and it's working. Great. People love it. I love it. Um, okay, so, so so somebody in the group, uh, can you scroll up? I don't remember if I have their name. I, I, I should have their name to... Uh, Your up, other up. up. Yeah, there you go. Okay, we don't have the name. Uh, we should we should find... Uh, Alan, will you find the, the name of the guy who, who wrote this? Because I want to give him credit. Um, so somebody was just talking about like... Hey, isn't it funny how people just rebrand stuff and like give it a whole new meaning? So he's talking about uh, MSG. He's like, oh, MSG, which was like got this really bad reputation for being this food additive, whatever, and just rebranded as umami. And now it's this like foodie word that like is good. And somebody came into I, the, the comments with like a bunch of really funny ones. You want to know another food one? Aioli. Aioli? It's just mayonnaise. <laughs> aioli it. is mayonnaise it has a little garlic flavoring look it up i don't think that's true i'm pretty sure it's better for you than mayonnaise look it up aioli is flavored mayonnaise <laughs> look up aioli versus just google is aioli mayonnaise, mayonnaise i'm telling you aioli is mayonnaise <laughs> but there's like way more you have, you have to do it in a separate tab yeah though. you can't you can't do this because we have to well, here, right the there what's the answer say it says it right there what's the top result what's it say is aioli any different than mayonnaise Am I off? All right, Henry wins. Okay, it's not it's not exactly mayo, but I like the intent. All right, so let's go back to the doc. Chilean sea bass is actually called Patagonian toothfish. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I love it. So, so so this guy had a bunch of them for business, which I like. So or nerds, um, you know, when you skip, you know, I, I don't know, I'm I'm like this. I skipped breakfast for years because I'm just lazy and didn't wake up early enough. Um, and now it's intermittent fasting. It's like, like this that. health trend. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm fasting till noon. It's like, yeah, you skip breakfast. By Marlon Montgomery. Okay, Marlon. Uh, Marlon was the original post, and then who posted all these comments Logan in it? Jeffrey. So Logan Jeffrey. Logan had a bunch of them that were fire that I liked. That's the reason I put it on here. Okay, so uh, when you just quit your job because you want to travel, now that's called dispersed retirement. <laughs> that's <laughs> which, hilarious. Which I like. Um, when you're a grossly underemployed writer or marketer, now you're a digital nomad uh, <laughs> because you have to go live in some low-cost area. Or a coach. Um, when you just like to eat beef and cheese because it's delicious, and now that's called the carnivore diet or keto. <laughs> I used to call the salami and cheese uh, redneck charcuterie. <laughs> um, sleeping around, online dating. <laughs> I don't agree with all these. I'm just I'm, I'm relaying Logan's good ones. Um, when you quit your shitty business idea that was bad all along and everyone told you it was bad, it's called pivoting. I like that. Um, failing fast. <laughs> when you have a fear of commitment and therefore do not own anything and do not settle down, you're now practicing minimalism. <laughs> I love that. Uh, so these are great. And uh, in general, you know, funny shit aside, um, I think there's a lot of power to this. I think as a leader, you often have to rebrand stuff so that it's more palatable to your team um, and uh, or to your customers. Packaging. Yeah, you have to frame things package them up in a certain way uh, we did this with our sushi restaurant where um, we realized that if we just describe things better or differently with 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 better words um, people would buy more and we could charge more because people wanted to have sushi that was more sophisticated so when we called it you know whatever um, you know Atlantic salmon with a blah 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 rather than just saying salmon that was better or if we would create a whole new word altogether and put a little trademark next to it that was even better than uh, using 
common words. Every once in a while, I like there's certain things that they use the positive phrase and just generally accepted. I like to use like a word that means the same thing, but is generally regarded as a negative just to fuck with people. So, for example, instead of saying like, well, we're going to um, get the customer to do this, like we're going to get them to buy by doing this or we're going to influence them by doing this. I like to use the word manipulate. <laughs> so like yeah let's manipulate them and get them to do this like like words that by definition work right just to just to kind of throw well, what happens if we call it what it is yeah let's just say so we're gonna manipulate them like i'm gonna manipulate this person to liking me and they're like well how are you gonna do that well i'm just gonna be nice and charming and, and be <laughs> listen to what they say <laughs> but if you use that word manipulate instead of influence it fucks with them and i love using right. that just to screw with people like yeah let's manip- or like um when political people say like well they have an agenda I'd be like, yeah, well, so, look, guys, I'm here to talk to you about my agenda, which is to do, like, right. of course I have an agenda. I'm trying to get you to do stuff. <laughs> uh, I'm like, yeah, you're, you're targeting, like, someone has a political agenda. Duh. They should, right? Uh, yeah, they <laughs> should have a political agenda. <laughs> uh, I, I love using those words. Those so, Henry, people. if you scroll up for a second. So, all right, that's the end of this episode. Uh, thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Make it all happen. Leave us a review. We like that. Uh, give us the real talk in the reviews because we read all of them and we like it. Or tweeted us. Sam's got twelve thousand Twitter followers now. He has surpassed me in the Twitter rankings. Eleven thousand three hundred. Eleven thousand three hundred. Counting. So, so he's winning. Um, great. All right, we're out of here. Thank you.